0: Uh, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to have you guys with us this morning. Um, if you're new, uh, would love to connect with you after the service and, and meet you, um, share a little bit about who we are and what we're after as a church. Um, for the last couple of months, we've been engaged in a series entitled The Story. And if you're new this morning, fear not. Um, the goal of, of this morning as we jump in will be to give you a little bit of a recap and catch you up to speed. Also, um, to help out those who serve in our kids' ministry, um, who are uh, in for a few weeks and then out for a week, or those of you who have been on vacation or out of town, just want to help you out as best we can to to kind of create a cohesiveness to this whole thing. Um, The purpose of this series, uh, well, there are a few of them. Um, Number one, uh, we established this series as an emphatic response to the cultural belief that the Bible is nothing more than a bunch of stories haphazardly piecemeal together. Uh, I don't know what kind of um, story uh, you have that you bring to the table, what you grew up in. But if you grew up in a world that uh, that said that the various stories that you see in the scriptures are are uh, segmented from one another, can be pulled apart from one another. Uh, we want to emphatically refute that through this series and argue rather that the Bible is one. Glorious, overarching, redemptive historical drama with the artistic creative God of the universe as its author, weaving the whole thing together into a masterpiece. And if you've been with us from the beginning, you've seen some of that even thus far. Another goal of this series is to emphatically respond to the cultural belief that the Bible is nothing more than a rule book um, telling you what you should do and shouldn't do, though the Bible does have some some rules in it, Uh, the Bible is not ultimately about what you do or don't do, but rather it's about what God has done, who he is, how he has entered in uh, to bring hope to us. This series is an emphatic response to the cultural belief that the Bible is nothing more than a book of heroes to be Emulated. Maybe you grew up and and all you heard when you engaged the story of David and Goliath was "slay your giants like David." And, and is there an element in which we imitate um, those who uh, walk closely with the Lord as they imitate Christ? Yes, yes, and amen to that. Um, but most of the people that we engage in the scriptures fall on their faces at some point. Do they not? The Bible is not ultimately a book of heroes. To be emulated. Rather, it's a redemptive story meant to point us to one true hero who binds the entire story together and his name is Jesus. So welcome to the greatest story ever told. In terms of recap, we we started this thing like anyone should do. uh, As you engage a book, you should always read the About the Author snippet on the back dust cover because that author's experiences, that author's world views are going to shape that very story that you're about to engage in. And the same is true of the author of this grand, divine, redemptive historical drama, which happens to be the God of the universe. And so uh, we talked about some things that are critical to know about God as you engage in the scriptures. If you were here, uh, if you weren't here in week one, I would engage you, uh, encourage you to go back and listen to um, that podcast online. Get that about the author snippet in front of you um, as you then engage the remainder of what we're after in this series. After talking about the author, we moved into this... The act of creation, represented by banner 1 over there to your far left, we look at the panoramic view of the creation story in Genesis 1 as God sets the stage for this divine, redemptive historical drama, hanging stage lighting from the cosmos in the form of sun, moon, and stars, uh, creating the various domains of land, uh, sky, and water, and creating a supporting cast of creatures to inhabit those various domains. And then we shift it into Genesis 2, uh, where the the camera zooms in on man in God's perfect utopian garden sanctuary. There's something more intimate about Genesis 2, where we see uh, sinless image bearers in glad submission to God as their covenant creator. You have God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. A garden filled with with a thousand tokens of God's love and provision. And then you got that one tree that God said, don't eat of." And a few weeks ago, we we entered into that part of the story going, what are they going to do? And most of us know what they're going to do because we grew up in the church, a lot of us. Um, But to to get a a refresher on that, I think, is really helpful to come at it uh, in a very uh, meticulous fashion. We see in Genesis 3, the antagonist, the villain. Satan himself enter into the story. He calls into question the trustworthiness of God's word. Did God really say? He paints a picture of a world in which, rather than playing by God's rules, man can call the shots. a, a world of judicial autonomy, of self-determination. Instead of God's word and God's world, it can be your word and your world. And in the moment, the forbidden becomes a delight to the eyes. Our first parents sin against God. And, and they find that they don't feel like God at all, although they thought that's how it would go. Rather, they feel dirty, they feel exposed, they feel guilty and ashamed. And they do what most of us do when we see our sin for what it is. They attempted to cover it up. The very joy that Adam and Eve were created for, to bask in the presence of God, it's the very thing they run from. Like a couple of fugitives, what was once an open, honest relationship with their maker becomes a game of hide-and-go-seek. We've talked about this for weeks now, a game that you can't win because God knows your hiding spot before he ever even, quote-unquote, closes his eyes and counts to ten. The perfect utopian garden sanctuary becomes a courtroom in that moment. God's character is on the line. How will he respond? And so we see both God, the just judge, and the loving Father. He punishes Eve with the pains of childbearing. He punishes Adam with the toil, the pain of work. We see the entrance of human conflict, especially within the context of covenant marriage as loving and cherishing are replaced with dominating and ruling. You see man experience not only spiritual death as the umbilical cord between man and God is severed relationally, but also physical death becomes a part of the world as we know it. Man will one day die, being swallowed up by the very earth that he was meant to exercise dominion over. Even creation itself experiences the effects of the curse. That's why there are thorns and thistles. Every time I do yard work, I'm reminded of it. But in the midst of the curse, God also offers hope. Uh, amidst the number of acts of God's grace in Genesis 3, in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin, we see God make a glorious promise that he's going to send a hero, a descendant of Eve, to crush the serpent's head. Last week, we talked about that. We spent time in one of the most theologically deep chapters in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 5. You, you should have, if you were here last week, you should have walked away with, with at least a little bit of a headache. If you you didn't, you probably weren't paying attention. I had a headache when I left last week. That that chapter of the Bible is meant to cause your head to hurt a little bit. It's so theologically deep because Paul is getting after uh, the, the very connecting points between what happened in the garden and our very story. The reason that we spent time in Romans 5 is that it informs us of exactly who this serpent-crushing descendant of Eve is. Romans 5 declares that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise in the garden in Genesis 3. That Romans 5 not only declares that Adam's story is our story, but it also declares that Jesus offers the cure to Adam's curse. It's not about you or what you do or don't do. It's about what Jesus and, and He, what he's done. We talked about that last week, that your justification before God isn't based on your obedience but rather on the obedience of Christ for you in your place, in your union with him by faith alone. That Jesus takes your guilt, it's courtroom language, and he gives you his perfect righteous record to hold before God. And and you might say, I don't deserve that. How in the world could that be? And, And you're right, you don't. You don't deserve that. That's the good news. If it were about deserving, you'd still be condemned in Adam. Still be guilty. Thank God that he doesn't give us what we deserve. Rather, he gives us his son. It's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus takes the curse in the garden and turns it upside down on its head. Adam sinned, uniting us to himself as condemned sinners. Jesus obeyed perfectly, uniting to himself and gifting his righteous record to all who would trust in him by faith. In other words, in Adam we stand condemned, in Christ by faith alone we stand justified. That was last week. Now now we want to connect the dots because there's a danger that happens for people uh, in the church um, where where we tend to think of the the work of the gospel in, in the past tense and in the future tense, but fail to see the beauty of the power of the gospel in between those two realities. And so you could say it this way. You could say last week we talked about what it means to be saved by the gospel from sin's penalty. we, We use that courtroom language of Christ declared guilty in my place, me declared righteous, not because I am, but because Jesus is for me. So if you're a Christian in this room this morning, that there was a moment in which you were saved from sin's penalty, in which you were brought from spiritual death to life. It's what Jesus refers to in John 3 with Nicodemus as being born again regeneration happened. You were made spiritually alive in that moment, whether you can articulate it well or not. Some of us can't. Some of us, having grown up in the South, we we had 15 different times where we prayed a a prayer to receive Jesus because we thought the last one didn't stick. And so we're trying to figure out now, when did I become a Christian? And and the, the reality is, you may never know this side of heaven. That may be a cup of coffee that you and Jesus have one day where He unpacks exactly when that happened for you. But whether you can pinpoint it well or not, that's a moment. That's a decisive moment when you were saved from sin's penalty. That's past tense language. And then there's this reality future tense, and we'll talk about this over the course of the next two weeks as we get into the act of restoration, where we will one day be saved from sin's presence forever as sin and evil are eradicated from the new heavens and the new earth. If you think about the way most people share their testimony, it it tends to truncate the gospel into a past and future tense reality, does it not? It it, it tends to become this, I, I was saved from sin's penalty at this point in my life back in the day, and praise be to God that as a result of that, I now can look forward to a future where I will be saved from sin's presence forever. But if you really begin to press and ask, but what about right now? how does the gospel matter for you right now? A lot of people struggle to answer that question. Which paints God out to be a God who saves us into a mundane life of boredom for decades until we die and see Jesus one day? That's terrifying. That's that's what explains some of the the zombie-like things that you see with your own eyes here in the Bible, though. People have bought into this lie of a truncated gospel that says it's about a past and future tense salvation, and they're missing everything in between those two bookends. And so we're going after the everything in between this morning, that there is a reality that if you've been saved past tense from sin's penalty, then you are present tense being saved from sin's power. So that's what we want to get after this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Romans chapter 6. We're just going to continue the conversation where we left off last week being the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6 if you don't have a Bible there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you you can grab one of those Bibles take that Bible with you as the church gift to you for free if you don't own a Bible that excites us to think that you'll be exploring the truth claims of Christianity on your own time let, let me just let me just say this up front and then I'll pray and, and we'll get to work the, this, this passage of scripture scares me Because it makes me deeply aware that I can't do what the third person of the Trinity alone can do. Because here's the reality. Here's what Paul is after in Romans chapter 6. I'm just going to lay my cards out there up front. What Paul's after in Romans chapter 6 is that if you think you're a Christian but you're really not, Paul wants you to despair as you engage this passage of Scripture. On the flip side... If you're a Christian, Paul doesn't want you to despair, but rather to be encouraged of the triumph that is yours and is guaranteed in Christ. So you see the danger there, that unbelievers would would face the reality that they don't truly belong to Christ and would fall on their faces and cry out for salvation while Christians would experience uh, great comfort and encouragement. Now here's the danger. The danger is that you could leave this morning as a Christian and find yourself despairing. The danger is that you could leave this place as a non-Christian and find yourself encouraged. And and I can't sift out all of those subtle nuances of the heart alone. I'm, I'm up here shooting buckshot, you could say. The Holy Spirit has to pull back the arrow and aim it at the human heart. I can't do that. And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would, would work to unearth your heart where you are, so that if you're not a Christian, you would find yourself on your face before God, crying out for salvation in Christ alone. And if you are a Christian, you, you would walk away fueled, as if you just drank a five hour energy, ready, ready to wage war against your sins. So let me pray for us. God, would you do what I can't possibly do? All I want to do is expound this passage well to attempt to articulate what you intend to say in 14 verses of scripture. Holy Spirit, would you please uh, awaken from the dead, uh, not only those who have come in with a, a clear awareness that they don't belong to Jesus, but those who think they do but don't in this land of cultural, nominal Christianity. God, would you create an awakening? That, that is how most of the stories of conversion will happen for our church, I believe, Lord. Not uh, people waking up one day strung out on heroin in the back of a pickup truck, deeply needing you, Jesus, but people who go, I thought I was a Christian in 2015. I don't think I was a Christian, as they experience more and more of the truth of the gospel. So God, would you do that? I pray that you would do that right now this morning. This would be a morning of awakening for, for those living in the zombie-like land of cultural Christianity. And I pray for those who, who know you and love you, who, who you have rescued from sin's penalty, that they would be encouraged to wage war against sin, knowing that that you are our great conqueror, our sin crushing serpent crushing Savior Jesus, who empowers that which you command. God, would you would you stir in our hearts in these ways that I can't possibly stir up um, and you lift this all up? by the power of the Holy Spirit, who we deeply need this morning, in the name of the Son Jesus. Amen. Verse 1. What shall we say then, Paul says? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And remember, Romans 5 comes after Romans 6. What did Paul just get through saying in Romans 5? He just got through saying, it's not about what you do or don't do. It's about what Jesus has has done. That your justification before God isn't based on your obedience, but on Christ's obedience for you and your union with him by faith alone. What's that? You're a terrible sinner? You're far more sinful than you ever imagined? Well, good thing Jesus is a far more glorious Savior than you are a terrible sinner. The cross of Christ abounds in gloriousness over the sins of man. Paul says, the rabbit hole of human depravity runs far deeper than we ever thought. Yet praise be to God that his grace abounds all the more. That's Romans 5. Anytime you declare the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, it has a way of making people a little nervous. Anytime you start talking about the lavish grace of God, the extreme grace of God, it creates an angst in some, does it not? I mean, if, if grace abounds, won't people just go off the moral deep end? Won't that just lead people to licentiousness, to, to sinning galore? I mean, if, if we really buy into Romans 5, won't the whole church end up strung out on crack tomorrow morning because we, we've all of a sudden been empowered to just sin all the more? Won't that just wreck the church? If we really believe that. You know, Paul's done a good job of unpacking the doctrine of justification by, by grace along through faith alone, because that's exactly what he anticipates his audience to say. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? In, in other words, should, should we work on a more abominable rap sheet so that Jesus and his cross will look that much more glorious? Let, let's just commit. Billions of sins so that Jesus will be the Savior who dies for billions of sins. Some are so terrified of this idea of man going off the moral deep end that they just abandon the gospel altogether. This is one reason why Christ and his gospel are not the center of many churches in our day. There's this, this fear. We can't, we can't possibly empower what it sounds like Romans 5 might be empowering we really start to talk like Paul in Romans 5, we just might have a mutiny on our hands. To be fair, I mean, some people have taken Romans 5 and have distorted it in such a way and used it to trample on the blood of Jesus. We see it a lot in the Bible, Belt. It's called easy believism. That's what I alluded to before we even dove into this morning's passage. The, the mentality, I got my get-out-of-hell-free car, so now I'll just do whatever I want to until I die. Paul says, that's a distortion. That's not what the gospel empowers. In fact, if that's your outlook, you were probably never Jesus's to begin with. Should we work on a more abominable rap sheet so that Jesus and his cross will look that much more glorious? And Paul in verse two says, by no means. It's the most emphatic way that you can say something in the Greek. May it never be. That's a gospel misfire to think that way, Paul says. Radical grace doesn't empower radical sinning. And now Paul's going to unpack why and how that is. That's Romans 6, and that's where we're going. Before we even get to the next part of this passage, notice notice that Paul doesn't say, oh, my bad, you misunderstood me. I didn't really mean that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I didn't really mean that it's not about what you do or don't do, but it's about what Jesus has done on your behalf. In fact, he assumes that they're tracking with him rightly, which is why the angst is there. He's not backtracking to course his theology in Romans 5. That's not what Romans 6 is. He goes on to say, how can we who died to sin still live in it this is what most people refer to as a rhetorical question Um, it's not meant to be answered it answers itself Uh, it's kind of like so my my oldest daughter lanier she started doing this thing for attention we have uh, these devices on our cabinets that close them up so she can't get them fully open but she can kind of barely pry them open just enough to get a finger in there and she started to do this thing where she'll, she'll pull it open just enough, stick her finger in there, allow it to shut, and then just start crying uncontrollably. And at, and at first, she had us. We were the suckers, because we came in, we were like, oh, baby! You know, and, and we you know, would, would walk with her and, and coddle her, until one day, you know, we noticed that she, she opened the cabinet, and her finger was, fingers were still a good six inches away from the door, and she started to cry before she ever even got the fingers in there during that that season which we're still not completely out of I've asked the question linear baby how how is it beneficial to stick your finger uh, in a cabinet door that's going to smash it to oblivion How, how is that beneficial for you now when I ask that question am I looking for an answer I'm not looking for my daughter to have an educated conversation with me about how it's beneficial for her to do that, to somehow get into some philosophical venture with me. But rather, what I'm saying is, Lanier, it's not beneficial for you to stick your fingers inside a cabinet that's going to smash them to oblivion. It's a declarative statement in the form of a question. That's what verse 2 is. That's what Paul's doing. He's not looking for an answer. When he asks, how can we who died to sin still live in it, he's declaring... We who died to sin cannot still live in it. That's what Paul's doing. You go, uh, excuse me? That, that doesn't seem to jive with my story. You know, I'm going to dogfight against sin, even present day. How do, you, how do you explain a statement like that? I think there are two critical questions that you've got to ask about verse 2 that I think Paul unpacks that we'll look at for the remainder of this morning. The first is, what does it mean that I'm dead? What does that mean? Paul says, how can we who died to sin? What does that mean that I'm dead? And secondly, what does it mean that I can't continue living in sin? He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? What does it mean that I'm dead? What does it mean that I can't continue living in sin? So look at the first of those questions. What does it mean that the Christian is dead? Verse 3, Paul says it this way. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And so when we uh, baptize people around here, when we fill up the giant above ground pool and bring people into the baptismal waters, that's an outward expression of an inward reality of something that's already happened in the life of the Christian. When you became a Christian, you died with Christ. That's a symbolism of going under the water. We see this elsewhere in this passage, this language of dying with Christ. I'll put the verses up on the screen for you. Verse 5, Paul says it this way, For we have been united with him in a death like his. So in becoming a Christian, there's a union that takes place. And that union is such that what happened to Christ is counted by God as happening to you, to me. Verse 6 says it this way, we know that our old self was crucified with him. So Paul says it like this in verse 6, that when Christ died, the old self, who you were in Adam, going back to last week, was counted as dying with Jesus. And then Paul says it one more time in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, again, another clear declaration that when Christ died, we were counted by God as dying with him. Okay, so the old self is dead. I don't feel like the old self is dead. If you're a Christian, it's declared by Scripture, the old self is dead, even when you don't feel like the old self is dead. Now the second question, in light of the dying of the old self, what does it mean that the Christian cannot continue to sin? Is Paul teaching perfectionism here in Romans 6? If he is, I think we should all tremble as we leave this place, because I don't think any of us is perfect. Does that mean that none of us are Christians? Here's why I don't think Paul is, is after the, the doctrine of perfectionism here. Because one, becoming a Christian means sinlessness. Verses 12 and 13 are a waste of heat. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's a command. Commands of obedience aren't needed for the morally perfect per se. Same thing could be said about verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present your members to God as those who have been brought from death to life. demands to be holy are unnecessary for the perfect. But if that's not convincing enough. I think there's a second reason that if becoming a Christian means sinlessness, Paul himself is not a Christian. And all you have to do is go to the very next chapter of the Bible, read Romans 7, and you'll read the story of a man who goes, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I do. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's Paul's declaration in the very next chapter. Elsewhere, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners for whom Christ died. I am the utmost of sinners, Paul says. So again, what does it mean that the Christian cannot continue living in sin? Paul's not teaching perfectionism. What what is he teaching? This is where I think the very center of this morning's passage is helpful. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be what? Enslaved to sin. He says it this way in verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So the idea that Paul has in his mind is that if you've been saved from sin's penalty, if you've been brought into the family of God by faith in the, the person and finished work of Jesus, sin will no longer have an enslaving effect on you. Sin will no longer have dominion over you. Sin will no longer rule and reign over you as your Lord. It's what we call the doctrine of redemption, being freed from uh, enslavement to the shackles of sin, that before you and I became Christians, if you are a Christian, we were uh, enslaved in, in shackles to sin with Satan as our slave driver. And what the gospel tells us is that Jesus put a key in those shackles and freed us so that we could enjoy making much of God forever. That if you're a Christian, the reality is this. When you sin, you're willingly putting your hands back in those shackles and returning to your old slave driver in those moments. Romans 6, Paul says, but you don't have to. Christ has freed you from sin's dominion, from sin's enslaving power. It's the beauty of the gospel. The the bottom line is this when it comes to Romans 6. If you're a Christian, you've been declared righteous in Christ. Now, for the rest of your life, God will empower you to practically become what you've been positionally declared to be. Does that make sense? So uh, I think a good example, I've given this one before, is the idea of, of marriage. That on your wedding day, you're, you're declared united to, to become one flesh with your spouse. Positionally, that is declared in that moment. And then for the rest of your life, you know that, that you don't practically become one on your wedding day, right? But for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, how many years God gives you to, to flesh that out on the ground, in the trenches of real human existence, you, you now get to, to work toward becoming what you've been declared to be. To becoming one flesh so that by God's grace, maybe one day when you're old and gray, you'll share a rocking chair. And when your spouse dies, you won't be too far after them because you're so knit to one another that it's really hard to, to even go on breathing when they die. We've been declared righteous in Christ, Romans 5. Romans 6, now for the rest of our lives, by God's empowering spirit, we become what we've been declared to be, growing in righteousness. And that does not happen without a fight. That is not a passive thing at all. Paul commands you to fight. Look at at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, therefore, in light of what? In light of the fact that the old self died with Christ. In light of the fact that Jesus put the key in the shackles, freeing you to say no to sin. In light of the fact that Jesus is glorious and good and worthy of worship. Therefore, in light of those things, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You go, and Jamie, how do I know if I'm ever going to get there? Well, here's the beauty of the Christian life, is that you're, you're not the only one committed to your holiness. You know that, right? There's one who's actually more committed than you are to your holiness. But namely the God of the universe. Philippians 1.6 says it this way. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, So you have divine sovereignty and human responsibility working in tandem in the war against sin see it crystal clear in passages like Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, Paul says. But if by the Spirit, divine sovereignty, you put to death the deeds of the flesh, human responsibility, you will live. That The idea of the Christian life is that God empowers us and we wage war against our sin. John Owen says it this way. It says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no neutral ground in this fight. The the truth of Romans 6 is meant to fuel us to wage war against sin. The good news is that it's not just that when Christ died, we were counted by God as dying with him. But when Christ rose from the dead as our sin-conquering, serpent-crushing, death-conquering risen king, we were counted as having risen as well. It's a both and, Romans 6 a new creation. The old self is pronounced dead in Christ. The new self is pronounced alive in Christ. That's why you you don't have the language of just death in Romans 6, but also language like this, verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The new self newness of life, and awakening, like Lazarus, God declared to your dead, lifeless soul, come forth. You were made alive in Christ. Again, we see this elsewhere in this passage, this language of resurrection. Verse 5 says it this way, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, We will also live with him. And lastly, look at verses 9 through 11. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion. There's that word. No longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, this is critical. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought about the, the critical nature of the mental in the fight against sin? It's a significant part of the waging of war on sin. It's mental. It's this idea, verse 11, of considering the old self to be dead. Declaring in the moments of temptation, of sin, of unbelief, the old enslaved Jamie, he's dead. I've been made a new creation in Christ. It's been declared of me. The scary thing is, in a culture we live in, it's really hard to slow down long enough to declare those things to yourself, isn't it? It's always the next thing to do, the next thing to fix our minds on. It's difficult to slow down long enough to allow who we are in Christ to truly sink in. But, but that that considering, that reckoning, that, that thinking on is a, a massive part of what fuels holiness. It, it begins with the mind. John Stott says it this way. He says, we are to recall, to ponder, to grasp, to register these truths until they are so integral to our mindset that a return to the old self is unthinkable. I don't know about you, but Sometimes I think the Apostle Paul is more convinced of my sanctification than I am. I'm honest. Again, look at the commands found in verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't do that! Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, Paul says, become what you've already been declared to be in Christ. Righteous. He's pleading with us. He's grabbing us by the shoulders here in Romans 6. Paul actually believes that we can grow in righteousness. Alongside everything we've talked about thus far, here's another beautiful reason for such confidence. Verse 14. Paul says, for Sin will will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is a statement of confidence. This is a statement of assurance. He doesn't say, for sin hopefully won't have any dominion over you, Christian. If all goes well, sin won't have dominion over you. Rather, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you, Christian. That's emphatic language. This is where it gets hard. So that if sin has absolute dominion over you, if sin is your Lord, maybe Christ isn't. And hear me out here. I'm not, I'm not arguing for an acing of the sanctification test. It's called progressive sanctification for a reason. I think, I think we um, fail to see the bigger some, uh, picture sometimes, especially in our cultural context. Uh, we live in a world and and many of you this resonates with you you go yeah i've I've done that one before you read your bible for 30 straight days and then you you fail to on day 31 you go into despair mode because you're not trusting the gospel you're trusting your own record of righteousness for god's favor and love um we we fail sometimes to see the bigger picture of what god is at work in doing i I think sometimes especially with passages like this the better question is but I love Jesus more, and I, I seeing sin and unbelief put to death in my life differently now than I did a year ago. Differently now than I did three years ago. Differently now than I did ten years ago. And, and looking at, at life as a marathon, the Christian life as a marathon, dogfighting in sin, rather than a sprint in which we uh, ask the hard questions Uh, that Romans 6 presents us with based on yesterday rather than based on the, the stretch, so to speak. Paul actually believes that for the Christian, sin won't be our Lord because Christ has taken that place in our lives. Charles Hodge says it this way in his commentary. He says, It's not a hopeless struggle in which the believer is engaged, but one in which victory is certain. That's comforting to me. It is a joyful confidence which the Apostle here expresses that the power of sin has been effectually broken and the triumph of holiness effectually secured by the work of Christ. Right. I don't know what your story is. I am the most slowly, slow, grueling, progressive work of sanctification that I know personally. Right. I've given this word picture before. It's not mine originally. John Piper Put it in my brain and I can't get it out um, in a good way now but when you became a Christian the Holy Spirit busted through the walls of your kingdom like a Sherman tank made, made a beeline for the castle on castle, went promptly to the throne and executed you so that Jesus could take his rightful place as king that's Romans 5 that's last week okay then for the rest of your life there are now flags of dominion being planted all over the kingdom it's not like all the troops of the flesh just said we're out of here Jesus is king now but rather, there's this grueling battle taking place all over the stretch of the kingdom, and for some of us, it, that feels like it's happening overnight. You look out and you go, "Man, a hundred flags of dominion quickly in my life." And if that's you, praise be to God for the work of the Spirit in that way in your life. That's not my story. Okay, I look out and I go, "There are just enough flags that I'm I'm confident I'm a Christian," and that's about it for me. Everything is a dogfight. The Holy Spirit walking with me, but slowly but surely moving me toward righteousness, what I've been declared to be already in Christ. If you're not a Christian, Romans 6 is meant to devastate you. If you're one of the many in the Bible belt who professes to be, thinks he or she is a Christian, but really isn't, I really don't want to give you an out here. I don't think the Apostle Paul gives you an out here. I want you to see sin's dominion in your life. I want you to see the absence of even a slow, grueling, progressive work of sanctification in your life as evidence that you don't belong to him. And I want you to fall on your feet and cry out to Him for salvation as a response to that. Another way to say it is that if you're not a Christian, my hope is that Romans 6 functions as the check engine light for your soul, the soul diagnostic. But here's the deal. If you are a Christian, I don't want that for you. Romans 6 is meant to ignite a fire in you. You're meant to know that victory is certain. You're meant to be empowered, encouraged, confident, excited to go out and fight sin because you know it will not win in the end. Paul says Christian sin will have no dominion over you. It won't. It has no more the final say on you than death had the final say on Jesus. The law compels fear and despair. Grace compels not going off the moral deep end. About the whole church becoming a bunch of heroin addicts because we read Romans 5. Rather, it compels love, gratitude, and obedience. That's what the gospel empowers. What a glorious Savior who loves me, this I know, who shed his blood for me, and who by his Spirit empowers that which he commands. There's a, a famous four line stanza. Some people attribute it to the great Puritan John Bunyan. Others attribute it to a number of, of other men of the faith who have come along. Really doesn't matter who wrote it. The quote itself is something like this Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings it bids us fly, it gives us wings. The, the gospel is like Red Bull. I mean, you really can, I mean, in some sense, you can say, the gospel will empower that which God commands. God will give you the wings to fly if he says fly. And Romans 6 is Paul declaring, fly, because God will empower you to fly if you're his. It's the beauty of the gospel that Jesus would die for me, a guilty sinner, Romans 5, that empowers the war on sin. It's the good news that I'm approved of perfectly in Christ that it empowers the fight against the approval of man for the rest of my life. It's the good news that I'm eternally secure in Christ that empowers the fight against fear in the face of chaos for the rest of my life. And on and on we can go. There's no gospel at all that says you're saved from sin's penalty just to, to rot for 50 years until Jesus returns. If you're a Christian, I want you to be encouraged by what you see here, that God will empower, He is empowering that which He commands even when it feels gruelingly slow. He will bring the good work He began in you to completion. He promises it. And so, compelled by grace, we fight. And it's a fight for what God originally intended in the garden, going back to creation, connecting the dots in this series. St. Clair Ferguson, and his commentary on Romans 6 says this, as the the image of God, man was created to reflect, express, and participate in the glory of God in miniature creaturely form. Restoration to this is effected through the Spirit's work of sanctification in which He takes those who have distorted God's image in the shame of sin and transforms them into those who bear that image in glory. What, What a glorious thing to be a part of God's restorative work To know that we are God's restorative work. A work that we participate in by His Spirit. And and make no mistake, as we close this morning, let me me leave you with one last thought. (coughs) This is a communal effort. I've honestly never understood the pastor who calls everyone to be a part of a community group and exempts himself from that. And I just think that—that that is uh, an exercise of futility on his part. That just seems dumb to me. As if he's superhuman. What a a silly way of thinking. We all need community. I deeply, me personally, I need a community of people who will remind me that the old Jamie is dead. I need a community of people who will remind me that I've been made alive in Christ. That I'm a new creation. I need a community of people who will remind me that he will complete the good work that he began in me. I need a smaller community of people who will help me to excavate heart idols and kill them so that they don't kill me. I need a smaller community of people who will help me to see the glorious excellencies of Jesus Christ and his cross. And lastly, I need a smaller community of people who will celebrate the victories over sin in my life with me because they're so slow that sometimes I can't see them myself. I need all of those things. I desperately need community to live out Romans 6. We all do. Community, community is a gift from God. Don't, don't reject that gift. The Christian life is, is life lived alongside others. A war waged with brothers and sisters in the trenches for the sake of our jewel. We can do it because what Paul says in this morning's passage, sin will have no dominion over you if you in Christ. Let me pray for us. God, as we prepare to come those of us who are christians to take communion take the bread dip it in the cup remembering your broken body and shed blood and celebrating your work on the cross on our behalf lord jesus i pray that you would even now continue to do what you i pray have been doing for the last several minutes of our time together which is working in our hearts to do one of two things god for those who are not truly yours, who don't truly belong to you, Jesus, who are Christians in name only. God, I pray that Romans 6 would create such a despair in them, this very moment, that they would turn to you, Jesus, in faith and cry out for salvation, that they would set aside their own record of merit and look to your perfect life lived on their behalf, your substitutionary death in their place, your triumphant resurrection that provides any hope of resurrection from the dead for them, that you would call them forth like you did Lazarus from the grave right now. And God, for those of us who do indeed belong to you, I pray that there would be no feeling of despair this morning, but rather a feeling of empowerment, A feeling of encouragement, a feeling of comfort, a feeling of triumph, knowing that you will complete the good work that you began in us, that sin will have no dominion over us, that you empower that which you command for the sake of your glory, for the sake of our joy. God, I pray that that would fuel us to leave this place and to wage war more declaratively on sin and Satan. God, that we would not function as enemies of our own joy as we leave this place, but that we would align ourselves with your good purposes, knowing that our joy is at stake in those moments, and in those moments of sin and unbelief, that we we would reckon ourselves dead with Christ and alive as a new creation. God, would you awaken our minds in those moments where a false narrative presents itself and we're inclined to believe it. Would you remind us of the gospel, Jesus loves us, this we know. The Bible tells us so. Romans 5 tells us so. And it actually empowers the fight, according to Romans 6. Yeah, we love you. We thank you for hope. We thank you for the power of the spirit within us. Thank you that we're not alone in this fight. Thank you for community along with the spirit that we can walk hand-in hand with others, linking arms for the sake of the gospel God, we love you. Again, I pray that you would just continue to work in human hearts over the course of the next few minutes. Pricing, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C R O S S. P-O-I-N-T-E P-T-C dot com